Good morning again. I'm Steve Hauer. I'm one of the teaching pastors. We'd like to welcome those who are watching online as well. In a moment, we're going to be taking a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We're dealing with a new series today called The Ripple Effect, The Myth of Sacrifice. Before we get to our text, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we often speak to you in the course of our week. We we pray a, a momentary prayer uh, for somebody that comes to mind or for a situation that we're facing or, or even for the sake of traffic, whatever it might be, significant or otherwise. But how often do we allow you to talk to us? Lord, we know that in your word, your spirit goes forth and, and accompanies the words so that uh, even though the pastor, the teacher, the devotional aid that I'm looking at may be saying something, your spirit opens up another thought and and pours another truth into my life that you want me to hear. It's a dynamic thing, your word, Lord. And, and so we humble ourselves, we quiet ourselves, and we ask that you would bless us through this time and this means. We pray in Christ. Amen. Well, we're talking about the myth of sacrifice. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12 in just a moment. I think every one of us knows what sacrifice means. Uh, typically, in religious terms, a sacrifice means the slaughter of a person or an animal uh, to somehow appease a god of some kind. And people make all kinds of sacrifices. But today we're talking about uh, the secondary translation or definition of that word. And that would be to, uh, to uh, lay down something of value to us that we would rather not lay down uh, for the sake of somebody else or for the sake of obedience, you know, to, to, to offer something of value to us that we would rather not part with, otherwise it would not be a sacrifice. In fact, there's an old joke that maybe helps us understand this that says that, you know, when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, we're pretty sure that Isaac must have been 10, 11, or 12, no more than that. Because if he had been a teenager, it would not have been a sacrifice. That's what, that's what the... That's what the story says. No, if it's true, but that's what they say. Today we're talking, though, about the, the myth of sacrifice. We know that uh, sacrifice is expected of us. You know, the Lord gave his life, and we therefore respond, presenting our lives, the Bible says, as a living sacrifice. Now, normally when a pastor stands up and talks about sacrifice, you kind of lean heavy on your wallet because you think he's going to be after it. And I'm really not talking about that. I mean, that's, that's a piece of it, but that's just a small piece of sacrifice. Today when I talk about sacrifice, I'm talking about, you know, making others more important than yourself. You know, you Christians who live your Christian life live a difficult life, an onerous life. Sacrifice. When you suffer wrong rather than take revenge, that's sacrifice. You know, when you give your time or you give your funds to help a worthy cause, that's a sacrifice that not everybody makes. And Christians are compelled to do those things. When you stand up for somebody who is weak, rather than identify with the strong, although identifying with the strong would make you a part of the in crowd, a part of the clique, that's sacrifice. And Christians immediately feel a sense of obligation to do that, whether you're in school dealing with a bully situation or whether you're at work uh, dealing with a, a popular situation that would be contrary to your Christian values. When you say no to wrong, even though it will cost you to do so in a business deal, that's sacrifice. Well, that's real. Why do we call it a myth? 
you know, myth of sacrifice. Is it really sacrifice? You know, the world believes that what you do and the way you live is sacrificial and needlessly so. You know, I'm a big Billy Joel fan and Billy Joel sings a, a lot of songs about the culture. And in one of his songs he says, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Sinners have much more fun. You know, that's what we want in life. And, and the Christian faith seems like it's a killjoy, you know, to the fun in life. You know, if we are faithful Christians, if we compromise our faith, maybe okay. But to be faithful, maybe not so much. But I think we're going to discover that there's consequence, you know, to all kinds of behavior. Sinful behavior has consequence as well. You know, first it seems appealing, it seems like fun, it seems like excitement, and then it turns hollow. It no longer provides the, the thrill that we thought, and, and then eventually it turns ugly. You know, faithful behavior also has consequence. At first it does seem, because we're flesh and blood, you know, we live in the world. At first it seems difficult, it seems onerous. But after we practice it, here's where the myth comes in. It's not what we expected. In fact, it's fulfilling. And it leads to greater blessing and even greater joy. This is exactly what Jesus said about the nature of living the godly life. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, he went on to say, <clears throat> whoever will find his life must lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake shall find it. You know, Jesus spoke tongue twisters sometimes. It's hard to unpack. What does it mean you have to lose your life? Does that mean die? Is that only when we find our life? Uh, I came across this translation. It's called the easy to read version. I didn't know there was such a thing. But uh, this is the way the easy-to-read version translates that same passage from Matthew chapter 10. Those who try to keep the life they have will lose it. It's not going to work out that way for you. But those who give up your life for me will find true life. That's why it's a myth. You know, the idea that, that we are going to lay something down of value that we would rather not give up. When you discover what God has in store for those who are obedient to at first it seems like difficult, at first it seems onerous, at first it seems like it will rob you and make you lesser, make you lacking, make you depleted of all the things that make life valuable. But that's the myth. In the end, it brings greater joy. It's called the ripple effect. You know, we have an illustration on our screen uh, of the ripple effect. There is Christ and there are the saints and there are you. And both Christ and the saints... Uh, by living their life and by the sacrifice that they made, will have an impact on you. Let's look at the scripture from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Today's lesson, the myth of sacrifice. Paul, writing to the Jews who were dispersed throughout the world, said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 11 just listed all the great people of the Old Testament and all the sacrifice and all the hard things that were required of them and, and why they willingly offered such sacrifice. Since we are surrounded by their example, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance our race. They ran their race, let us run with perseverance our race marked out for us. Always fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The one who made faith possible and the one who makes our faith possible. 
Because of the joy set before him, he could endure the cross. He could scorn it, shame, laugh at it, really. And he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary, that you will not lose heart. Again, uh, the scripture says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, it, it seems like there are two extremes when it comes to the saints. You know, there are churches that pray to the saints, that ask the saints to intercede for them as though God might be too busy. And maybe if we have an advocate in heaven, we might uh, have our petition presented in such a way, you know, like a, like a person at Congress knocking on a door, uh, that we would get what we have need of. You know, in, in fact, some churches actually have to qualify a saint. You know, some miracle has to be performed in response to a prayer to assure that they are actually in heaven. You know, we don't believe that. In fact, the Bible uh, gives us the example of John, who in the book of Revelation actually knelt down before an angel when he was granted a vision of heaven. And an angel quickly said, please don't do that. Worship only God. You know, prayer is a form of worship. Angel would not allow John to even reverence him. Worship only God. And so we don't advocate or, or pray to saints in that fashion. And there's another extreme that says, you know, we don't pay any attention to the saints. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, you know, my Bible begins with the story of Jesus and the gospel of Matthew. I have no need for the Old Testament. I think, well, you're throwing away a lot of good scripture, a, a lot of good example of how God interacted with people. And he is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. You know, we do study the lives of saints. In fact, we study even the lives of other Christians, our parents, our grandparents, and they have an impact on us. You know, so we honor them in the proper way, and we learn from their example. You should not have to make every mistake yourself. You know, you should learn from the mistakes of others and also from the right behavior of others. In fact, the Bible makes that very point in 1 Corinthians 10. It says, these things, all these things in the Old Testament, he's talking about Israel wandering through the wilderness, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as teachings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. He says, you know, we have the example of the saints, and that should serve us well. And I pray that it does. And then we have also uh, the example of Christ. Uh, it's clear how his sacrifice has impacted us. I mean, the main purpose of Christ's mission was to die for us. The Bible says he became sin personified, took our sin upon himself, and he died for us so that we might receive his righteousness. He took sin, gave us perfection, died for us, and in him we have our salvation. You know, that's probably the most important aspect of Christ coming to earth. But it's not the only aspect of Christ coming to earth. You know, when Jesus walked among us for those three years and all the stories that recount his interaction with people, we learn how God thinks towards people. We, think, we learn how, how God acts towards sinful people. We learn how God acts towards those who know nothing about the nature of God. We learn in Christ's example what God thinks about self-righteous and superior Christians and the arrogance of such. You know, so we see God in action. In fact, I love the way uh, John in his gospel uh, tells us the story of Jesus' birth. Quite different than all the narratives that you will find in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John simply says, the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Up until now, people knew, do this, don't do that. This pleases God. This does not please God. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus showed us the heart behind the commandments. Now, I like to say that the commandments were given uh, by the same person and for the same reason as our Savior. Because God loves us. You know, they're given out of love and not to make our life difficult. But the scripture goes on to say, not anyone, uh, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God is in close relationship with the Father. He has made him known to us. So not only do we have the salvation that Christ provided, we also have the example that Christ provided. Now in our text, we have a, a game plan for victory. You know, this, this sacrificial life that leads to victory. We're in the middle of, a, of another playoff series for the pennant. It's uh, interesting how much attention Mike Matheny is getting right now uh, because of uh, his incredible run. He's been three years a manager and three years he's gotten this far. It's incredible. In fact, some guys spend their entire uh, career and never get this far. And so they're wondering what makes this guy different. What makes this guy different is, is not a mystery. In fact, a number of years ago, before he was ever named as the Cardinal Skipper, uh, he was actually on a flight back from the East Coast, and he had just been asked uh, to uh, coach a youth baseball team. And, and he knew he was going to have to deal with parents. That's the hardest part of coaching youth, is dealing with parents. And, and, and before he even met with them, uh, on the airplane, on the way back, he, he typed out five pages of notes that he wanted to share with those parents. And also, it's been called uh, Matheny's Manifesto, you know, his view of baseball. And, and here's what he had to say in that. Uh, first of all, he said, I think the concept that I'm asking for all of you to grab is this. This experience will all be about your boys. If there's anything about it that is about you, you need to make a change of plans now. You've been there, you know what he's talking about. He says, my main goals are these. Teach young men how to play the game of baseball the right way. Secondly, be a positive impact on them as young men. And three, do all of this with class. We may not win every game, but we will be the classiest bunch of coaches, players, and parents in every game. The boys are going to learn to play with respect for their teammates, their opposition, and the umpires no matter what. In fact, it was interesting to me the other night after they clinched our division, uh, they interviewed some of the players in the locker room. And they say, so what, what's the key to Matheny? What, you know, what makes him so great? He says he demands respect. He demands and gives respect to all the players and demands it from player to player. And he demands it also that the players show to his staff. You know, there's this sense of this is serious and, and we're going to play it in, in the proper way. And we're going to give each other mutual respect. But he didn't stop there. He went on further. He said, uh, with that being said, I need to let you know where I stand. I have no hidden agenda. I have no ulterior motive other than what I said are my goals. But I also need you to know that my priorities in life will most likely be a part of how I coach and the expectation I have for your boys. My Christian faith is the guide for my life. Now, I've never been one for forcing my faith down somebody's throat. But I also don't believe that by being cowardly or hypocritically shying away from what I believe will serve you well. 
you as parents need to know for yourselves and for your boys that when the opportunity presents itself, I will be honest with what I believe. That may make some of you uncomfortable. But I did this as a player, and I hope to continue it in any endeavor in which I engage. I'm just trying to get as many potential issues out in the opening from the beginning. Now, what I'm not saying is that uh, we have divine favor upon the cardinals and that God is miraculously intervening on their behalf. You know, I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying the value of sacrifice and godly values does bear fruit even practically in life. It's not all so that you might one day inherit eternal life. There's also value in it now. It's a myth to believe that by being faithful to the Christian faith, you are laying down all the good stuff in life. And this will be a difficult time for you until only when you die, you will receive blessing. Blessings come now by living the life that God has called us to. He has a threefold formula for victory. First, aside, first of all, he says, lay aside every sin that easily entangles you. Lay aside the dead weight. You know, Pastor Garrett and I say this constantly, but I don't think it can be overstated, is, is that God isn't so concerned about misdeeds and about sin because it somehow embarrasses him. Just as if you are a parent and your child acts out or your child is behaving in a way that you know is wrong, it's not so much embarrassment of you, I pray. You know, there may be moments. But it's not so much about embarrassment of you. You're concerned about the path on which your child is walking. You know, it's about your child. And that's God's nature as well. He doesn't desire our obedience because somehow it honors him. He desires it because it blesses you. He wants you to sin he wants, he, want, he wants you to repent of your sin. He wants you to turn away from your sin because ultimately there's consequence for that behavior. Not just in eternal life, not just putting your soul in jeopardy, but also in this life. As I said, at first it seems appealing. You know, the devil knows how to do that. But the devil won't let you have just the joy. He will bring what seems to be appealing, even though it's sinful, to a place where it is hollow and it is meaningless. And then it will turn ugly, and it will be destructive of you. For this reason, God says, lay aside the sin that so easily entangles you. Secondly, he says, run with endurance. You know, Christians constantly act as though this is a sprint. You know, at any given moment, I should have God's favor. And when I don't have God's favor, what's going on with God? Why doesn't he care for my family? Why doesn't he care for me better than this? You know, it's an endurance race. And like every parent, again, the Lord knows that there are times in which struggle is necessary in life. There are times in which loss is necessary in life. You know, it, it makes you something greater than you are now. God still desires, even through difficulty, but also through blessing, to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. It's the long haul that God is concerned for. And for those of us who are mature in the faith, he may even be asking us to endure sacrifice for the sake of a witness that others are observing that may be a beneficial and a blessing to them. So first of all, lay aside every sin that's only destructive of you. That's God's concern. Then understand you're running an endurance race, not a sprint. And third, fix your eyes on Jesus. Yes, because he's your savior. 
Yes, because in his behavior you also come to understand the Father in heaven, because he was Emmanuel, God among us. But also because he's an example of how God interacts with people and how we too should interact with people for the blessings that God desires for us. Now, this isn't known only to Christians. This is objectively defensible. Uh, I was fascinated by uh, both my dad and my father-in-law, who were obviously of a previous generation. They were World War II guys. And and back in the day, back in the 30s and 40s, uh, they often memorized, even in public school. Now, I went to a Lutheran Christian school. We had memory work every day. In fact, we had a a book of memory. You know, we had a memory book that we had to take home. We had to work our way through it. Some hymns, some scripture, we memorized. But even people in public school back in the day believed that there was value in teaching people to memorize. They didn't memorize scripture, obviously, but they memorized poems. They memorized hymns. They memorized uh, important truisms about life to teach ethics, more or less, to young children. Now, one of the guys that got memorized a lot was Edgar A. Guest. Edgar A. Guest uh, was a, a popular poet during the 30s and 40s. He wrote for the Detroit Free Press and, and uh, actually began to also have a nationwide syndicated radio station. And the reason I know of him is because both my father and my father-in-law sometimes quoted his poets, his, his poems. And it was kind of fascinating to me. And, and uh, one of them came to mind that I remember both of them mentioning. It was called The Few. And it deals with this idea of the myth of sacrifice. Uh, the poem that uh, Guest, who actually became a poet laureate, the only one in Michigan, tell Pastor Garrett that, um, uh, goes like this. The easy roads are crowded and the level roads are jammed. The pleasant little rivers with the drifting folks are crammed. But off yonder where it's rocky, difficult, sacrifice. But you get a better view, blessing. You will find the ranks are thinning and the travelers are few. Not many willingly go there. Where the going smooth and pleasant, you will always find the throng. For the many, more's the pity, seem to like to drift along. But the steeps that call for courage and the task that's hard to do, in the end results in glory for the never-wavering few. You know, there is blessing, not only in death, but also in life. Let's uh, take away uh, a few findings from our text today. Uh, They come right out of the scripture. Uh, first of all, for the joy set before him. The Bible says, Jesus sacrificed for the joy set before him. Now it must be said that as you read the accounts of Christ, you will see that he had an understanding of life. The disciples were trying to understand that. And then the popular uh, crowds that followed him uh, were somewhat even more distant from his point of view then. He had a powerful uh, source of strength in his life. He had a powerful perspective that enabled him, you know, to be faithful, enabled him to realize what really mattered and what would bring in the end a greater blessing. He had a perspective that we don't see. He once told Satan, man does not live by bread alone. You can have immediate passing pleasure, immediate gratification, or you can have delayed gratification. You know, man does not live by bread alone. Live by the power of God and trust in him, even if it takes a while for the blessing to reveal itself. Remember the conversation he had with the woman he uh, met at the well who had been married five times and the one she was living with now was not her husband. 
he asked her for a drink of water, more or less just to open a conversation with her. And she said, how is it you, a Jew, ask from me, a Samaritan and a sinful woman, uh, a drink of water? He said, if you had asked from me, I would have given you the water of life. You know, that's what he has to offer. For the joy set before him in life and also for the certainty of returning to heaven's glory, he could endure the difficult of the moment. Secondly, sacrifice has always been the path to greater blessing. It was in the Old Testament as well. God established a sacrificial system, uh, you know, these rituals, for the sake of people. You know, by making sacrifice, when they first began their harvest, they were reminded, God has given me this harvest. By going down to Jerusalem and, and making a sacrifice at their firstborn child, they were reminded, God has given me this child. When they had to go to make a sacrifice at the temple, at the end of the harvest, they went down and said, God has again blessed us with a harvest. You know, sacrifice was always a means by which God reminded people, you have something that I've given you that you can now share. It was a ritualistic reminder, you know, that the sacrificial system put in mind God's people of God's favor. It also freed them from their past. You know, when they made sin offerings, uh, they had this ritual that reminded them that God has forgiven us. They went through a cleansing process. You know, we do that in service today. Uh, Steve was out here earlier, Prus, and, and he led us through a, a time of declaration of our faults before God. We do that almost every service. And a reminder that, that we have uh, been forgiven. In fact, we're going to sing in a minute, Jesus paid it all. You know, it's just an important reminder that we need to have constantly. We're going to have a baptism in a moment. You know, again, God is going to claim us as our child. Wash away your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Ritual. When we come before the Lord's Supper, ritual. God established it just to remind us that you are freed from your sin. Don't live with guilt and shame like those who don't know what God has done for them. And third, move forward knowing that you have God's favor. That you've been restored and you can live with confidence knowing that God is for you. And you don't have to be afraid of the mistakes that you have made. Finally, it must be said that the principle of sacrifice is counterintuitive. You know, the idea that in sacrifice we are blessed. In the difficulty of the Christian faith, we receive favor uh, is against common reason. Normally, I think when we give up something of value, we deplete ourselves. We lack, you know, we, uh, we, we uh, uh, give something and don't receive. But in fact, here's what the Bible says through the prophet Malachi. Now, here he is speaking about offerings, although the whole thing is not about offerings. The whole thing is about a way of life. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Probably the, the, the weekly way in which we are reminded of our blessing is to give a portion of it back to God. And remember that we're just giving him a portion. He gives us the 90%. Uh, to uh, deal with our own life. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And he says, test me in this. You know, I know this is not usual. Test me now in this. And see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven. Test me and see if you won't receive the blessing and pour out so much so that there will not be room enough to store it. For I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. Now, I don't have many crops. Don't have to worry about pests. But I have a car. I have a refrigerator. I have a hot water heater. I have things that devour my income. 
And the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. You know, God will bless some of those deals and make some things possible. You know, it's just his nature. When he finds a useful tool, just like you in your toolbox, you tend to use it more often. It's counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true. Faithfulness leads to blessing. Please rise and join with me in this concluding statement uh, that reminds us that... um, One day we will understand this perfectly, although now we wrestle with the concept. One day we will understand it perfectly. Paul himself in Romans chapter 8 said, The Spirit himself testifies with my spirit that I am God's child. And if I am God's child, I am an heir. He's going to take care of me as a child. He's going to give me an inheritance like a child receives an inheritance. I'm an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. If indeed we share in the sacrifice... In order that we might also share in the glory. Now we read together the continuation. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Not only in death, but also in life. The sufferings are not worthy to be compared because the blessings far outweigh them. Amen. We pray. Gracious Lord, bless us to this end. Help us understand that, um, that your sacrifice uh, was sufficient uh, for our salvation. To give us a right to pray and to expect a Father to love us and, and to answer in ways that would prosper us. Help us to realize that, that you did pay it all. And that not only through the sacrifice am I assured of eternal life, I'm assured of your favor now in life. And I can be confident to live my life even when it seems difficult that you will not be far and through difficulty bring blessing. This we pray in Christ. Amen.